0: Welcome to Exec Insights, conversations about Australian business and the changing world. I'm Kate Joyner from QUT's Graduate School of Business. Today I'm delighted to welcome Margaret Wheatley, best-selling author of titles which will be familiar to many of us, including perhaps her best known, Leadership and the New Science. Meg is a speaker, teacher, consultant and advisor. And to many of us, for a long time, has been a shining beacon of human values, such as community, generosity, and contribution. She continues these themes in her latest book, which she's launching here today at QUT, Who Do We Choose to Be? Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. Margaret Wheatley, welcome.
1: Well, I'm very glad to be here.
0: Um, May I call you Meg? Please do. Oh, that's lovely. All right, I've said to Meg what we'll do. I'll, I'll introduce some of some of maybe some of the uh, edgier themes um, okay. in, <laughs> in your book that you can speak to, and we'll have a conversation about them. I think this um, this book is actually one of your more. Would you say it's one of your more provocative? I, I think it's uh, without a doubt
1: the most important book I've ever written. Mm. So you can call it provocative. It's Very provocative. Very yeah, challenging, yeah. and very important that we think about these things.
0: And the things that we're thinking about, I've, I've just chosen one um, excerpt to go with, um, so to get us started. So this is uh, early on in your book. This needs to be stated clearly at the outset. We cannot no longer solve the global problems of this time at large scale levels, poverty, economics, climate change, violence, dehumanisation. Even though the solutions have been available for a very long time, they require conditions to implement them that are not available political courage, collaboration across national boundaries, compassion that supersedes self-interest and greed. These are not only the failings of our specific time in history, they occur in all civilizations at the end of their life cycle. So why I thought that was provocative, Meg, I suppose we think that our narrative at the moment is that we're living in very particular, unique times. Right. But I, th- I think if you pull back, <laughs> as you seem to do in this book, uh, in fact, it's um, in some ways predictable. Would, would it is
1: predictable. And mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful place for me to start. Because people say, well, you seem pretty fatalistic, Meg or this is rather dark, what you're portraying, and all I reply is, this is historical. Mm -hmm. We have been here before. It's the pattern of every human civilization, no matter where it occurs. And my point of stressing that it's historical is so that we shift from trying to find a solution at the global level, because if you analyze anything, I think one of my best case examples is uh, Pope Francis Laudato Se, our, our common home, which was a brilliant analysis, a systemic analysis, a spiritual and compassionate analysis, asking us, could we please notice we're all living on one planet, where we are, and what we have to do? Well, that didn't go anywhere, and it was predictable. He had to write it, but it, it doesn't counteract the forces of self-interest, nationalism, ethnicism, the way we're warring with each other now. And that is, um, my own thesis is, let's pay attention to what we can and can't achieve as leaders. It's a very important role for us to play, but it's primarily local at this point.
0: It's primarily local. So that um, you say you challenge every leader you meet, with uh, who do you choose to be for this time? Are you willing to use whatever power and influence you have to create islands of sanity that evoke and rely on our best human qualities to create, produce, and persevere? So this is that we should find those opportunities among ourselves to um, to find the human qualities. um, Well,
1: using whatever influence we have, and it varies from maybe leading or working with a team of colleagues to leading a large function. I've worked with all those people this week here at QUT. Um, But the question is, how can we take a stand? How can we apply moral and ethical leadership again? How can we engage people? I have a definition that sane leadership is, is the unshakable confidence that people can be generous, creative, and kind. But the operative phrase there is can be. And that, for me, is the role of leaders now. What do we assume is true of people? How can we create the conditions within our domain, within our sphere of influence, to bring forth people's best? Because we certainly have enough scenarios and examples that bring forth people's worst. And one of them is that in response to the current world scene and the national scene anywhere, people are becoming very cynical, withdrawn, exhausted, despairing, grief struck, and it's still possible if you take this island of sanity approach to create meaningful work and reintroduce people to actually the pleasures, even the delight of working well, solving problems, and uh, working with good teammates.
0: Mm. To, to find purpose even in, in the midst of our... There's more our, and more our purpose. Our literally and figuratively. That's right. Yeah. I mean,
1: you think about it, um, I certainly have thought about it quite a lot, and I've witnessed these islands of sanity being created. It takes an enormous amount of commitment on the part of the leader, but it's providing people with meaningful work and we are suffering desperately from the lack of meaning, the over but the lack of meaning in our lives. So this is a great gift that, that we give to people through our leadership, but it's hard because the island mentality is very real for me. We have to keep at bay all the forces of bureaucracy, the incessant policy changes, the crazy politics, um, and create some place that really feels uh, where it's possible to do decent work again.
0: To do decent work again. So I, I think the, which leads me to, the, to another excerpt that I found um, uh, that resonated with me and with many of the managers that, that we work with in our programs is uh, not despairing so much, but they really um, find that the leaders above them mm-hmm are giving them no sustenance or not giving them no context. So you say, at any moment, they or their programs may be swept away or severely hampered by thoughtlessness or venal political decisions. There are no assurances they will achieve long-term impact or be rewarded for success from the leaders above them who are possessed by fear and panic, and yet they persevere because they're doing the best for their people. So it's, it's this feeling that um, anything that I do may be swept away in the next political that,
1: You know, I offered that definition uh, several times this week mm. to people from many different uh, areas of leadership and business and the government and education. And they all have that experience. It's a very common experience now. You work for years. You have a well-designed program, and you're actually getting good results. And all of a sudden, it's not funded. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, some politician decides, no, we don't want that. Mm -hmm. Or there's a budget cut that's done in a rather senseless fashion, such as we're just cutting everything by 10%, Mm -hmm. 20% even.
0: And uh, programs that you, that you, uh, uh, is part of your professional domain and to which you feel very passionate. So I'd imagine the people who are in the EPA in the US at the moment, I think they've been decimated. People
1: everywhere mm -hmm. in the USA. I mean, in the State Department, in the Justice Department, in the EPA, I work with national parks, in education, everywhere. This is, and it's not just cuts of 10% some cases Trump has quite ruthlessly and heartlessly and mean-spiritedly cut programs by 90%. I mean, this is just saying, get out of here.
0: Mm. And in fact, there's been no capacity left. We'll no capacity. Mm. No
1: capacity.
0: So I guess those that would say, yes, but there is a cycle that will turn. And yes, it, well, so let's uh, talk about that. <laughs> I get that a lot here in Australia,
1: that people, you're really into the pendulum myth.
0: Yes. Pendulum
1: you know, you have a bad leader and you have a good leader. Mm. This is true but what's happening underneath them. you know? And, and actually, I'm giving a lot of thought to this because I keep coming up against it. If you believe that a bad leader is then uh, succeeded by a good leader and then a bad leader, you're actually believing in the great man theory of history, that the leader makes the difference. The leader does it all. That's what Trump believed. Um, But you have to look at what's happening to the systems, what's happening to the departments, what's happening to people, what's happening to the fact that instead of trying to solve problems long-term, we're all going, you know, all governments are going after quick fixes. Um, So it's okay to say, yeah, we won't always have such a destructive president in the US, for example, or the primary example, But, in fact, it's a destructive president who is destroying long-term capacity as well as individual lives and the environment. So it doesn't do any good to say, you know, an excellent leader may come in because you have to look at what got destroyed. Mm -hmm. And it is cyclical. It's not pendulum. It's cyclical. Mm -hmm. And the whole thesis of my book and the, uh, the really good work on civilizations that I draw on talks about all civilizations, are cyclical. And my attention is to where are we on that cycle. And it seems very clear because the pattern is so well defined that we're at the end. We're at the end of this particular way to manifest civilization. Very hard for us to believe that because we also in the West believe in the myth of progress. You know, it's always going to get better. We just have to work harder. Uh, Well, that's an ahistorical position. You can't establish that anywhere in history. And my own work now is let's face reality because there's very important leadership to be claimed. I'm going through the subtitles of my book now. And what we really need to claim is how to create places where people are still respected, where people still feel creative, not to turn around everything, but to give people you know, a, a chance at good work, a good life, no matter what is happening in the outside external environment. In my own experience of working in post-disaster situations, and now we have in the States two huge ones with the recent spate of hurricanes, Um, is that people remember those times of contribution, caring for one another, not thinking of self-interest, but just wanting to help and serve. They remember those times as joyful. So my own experience is that joy, as separate from happiness, is not dependent on external conditions. I experience it in my own work now with leaders who are past the myth of progress, who are actually very eagerly and anxiously engaged in being present for people and being a, a, you know, consoling, encouraging, helping people be creative, Um, not for some greater progressive cause, but just because that's the right thing to do, Mm -hmm. and then joy is available.
0: So we do good work because we do good work. Exactly, I think that was that's Angela
1: Blanchard. It's yeah. wonderful. Now she's a primary leader in Houston, so she's got her hands full again.
0: Mm, very much so. So, how do those leaders themselves uh, sustain themselves and, that's and sustain? It. That is
1: the question, uh, because in my own experience, leaders who rela- who knew good processes for leading, high engagement, high participation, intrinsic motivation all of that, they're finding it increasingly difficult to have the time or the resources or the authority to use those processes. So the way they need to nurture themselves is through uh, the gratitude of people who actually will love working for a leader who's caring about them, who is, I'm not talking about a love fest. I'm talking about you care for people by creating good work, by allowing them to experience you know, their own creativity and their own risk-taking and their own um, generosity. And that's, that is rewarding. But the other thing is, <clears throat> in my own work, in training experienced leaders as warriors for the human spirit, we spend a lot of time on creating presence, on creating internal peacefulness, stillness. We we all know how to meditate, how to bring ourselves present. And that is in itself quite nourishing.
0: Yeah, those' the tools that you mm-hmm. de- it's one use. of the
1: capacities we're developing, which is, In the program, but was that a personal question? Yes, it was. Oh, yes. Yes. I was just asked at lunch, so do you ever go on vacation? (laughs) And it struck me actually as an odd question, a good question, a normal question, but I don't seek vacation. I seek moments when I can really retreat and be in a contemplative, if not a meditative, state, and that's how I nourish myself. I would not any longer indulge, <laughs> that's a judgment, but I wouldn't do anything that was just all about me except to work to really develop a quiet, calm mind. Mm-hmm. And I, I do a lot of that now. You do a lot of that? I yeah. do a lot of it.
0: As I think we all will, yeah. Now Meg's going to launch her book in just a moment and we're going to celebrate, so at this point we'll say, Meg Wheatley, thank you very much. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you for good questions.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Exec Insights. For more information about QUT's Executive Education programs, please search QUT Executive Education and you'll find a full range of our programs and services.